So in this episode, I'd like to discuss uh, cardiovascular medications as it applies to the athletic trainer. Um, And when we look at these medications, there's really two major overarching pathologies that we look at and we see a lot of with our with our traditional patients. Um, And that would be arrhythmias and primarily medications that deal with hypertension. So let's start with arrhythmias and really quick, just a kind of background on arrhythmias as a reminder that they are basically irregular heart um, beats or heart actions rather um, caused by some kind of physiological or pathological disturbance where the discharge of cardiac impulses from the sinoatrial nodes or the SA nodes or their transmission through the conductive tissue of the heart is not considered to be normal. Um, these arrhythmias can be idiopathic and they can come and go really for no reason. But one of the biggest things that we would be suspicious of um, is if a patient was complaining of syncope or near syncope without really any other significant history, um, no real crazy dietary changes or activity, things like that. Um, they just have this complaint of syncope or near syncope. So we have patients who are Um, suffering from arrhythmias, we really, really, really need to push compliance with their medications and really strict compliance and regimenting with their, with their medications, because deviation from these regimens can just basically spell out um, recurrence of the arrhythmias. Um, There's five major types of arrhythmias that I'm just going to kind of briefly touch on. We'll get more into this stuff when we get to gen med. Um, But the first one is a sinus arrhythmia, and this can be um, like sinus tachycardia, which is where we would see something like the, the heart rate at 100 or higher beats per minute. Sinus bradycardia, bradycardia meaning a lower heart rate, so we're looking at below 60 beats per minute. Um, we have supraventricular arrhythmias, like atrial fibrillation or um, AFib, you might see it abbreviated as, and that's where the atrial rate is at 300 or more beats per minute. Atrial tachycardia is where the atrial rate's around 140 to 200 beats per minute or higher. Uh, the third type is atrioventricular junction arrhythmias. And so this could be a junctional rhythm that's at 50 to 55 beats per minute. Junctional tachycardia, where we're looking at 100 to 200 beats per minute. We then have conduction dis- uh, disturbances like a atrioventricular block or an AV block or a bundle branch block. Both of these are variable in how many beats per minute we would see with um, heart rate. And then the last type is the ventricular arrhythmias. These are a little bit more dangerous, um, like V-fib or ventricular fibrillation, which is a very irregular and uncoordinated rhythm. Um, and it can uh, both in, in um, frequency and in rate. So how often the heart's beating and how fast or how slow the heart is beating. Um, so we start talking about medications for these arrhythmias. We call we essentially break them down into four different classes. And so the first class or class one are sodium channel blockers. So I want you to think briefly back to um, exercise physiology and you think about how muscle contraction works and how there is electrolytes like calcium and sodium and whatnot that potassium that that um, are exchanged or used in the in the junction of the nerves um, to facilitate. Um, excitation and all that kind of stuff. So class one, sodium channel blockers, these basically block sodium channel functions, um, which slows down or retards the cell membrane excitability. You go on to a class two, 
which is um, our beta adrenergic blockers. And these basically antagonize the stimulation of the heart through the sympathetic nervous system. So we're down-regulating. Um, makes the effort to achieve max heart rates difficult, um, which is advantageous to some and disadvantageous to other, depending on the sport. So a, a sprint-type event, like a sprinter, or um, maybe a um, swimmer or something like that, these may not be a good thing. But for maybe a, a, um, a shooting athlete, like a distance uh rifle shooter, for example, slowing the heart rate down could actually help steady the hand and make it um, essentially a performance enhancer for that particular athlete. So these are not something that we traditionally see a ton of in sport because of this, uh, but they are out there. We can use them if necessary. Our third class is our potassium channel blockers, and they basically just try to delay the repolarization effects of cardiac tissue. Um, and then our class four, which is our calcium channel blockers, and they slow calcium activity of the sinus and atrioventricular, or those AV nodes, which in turn slows down the heart rate. Now, there's a list of adverse reactions that can occur, um, and they vary in intensity and severity, but one of them is lethargy, fatigue, the bradycardia, hypotension, low, low uh, blood pressure, and cold sensation in the extremities. Again, we're, we're slowing things down so that exchange of blood isn't um, as quick as we're used to. We know that blood helps to diffuse heat uh, more routinely. Some of the less common adverse reactions that we could see would be like a headache, rash, puritus, nausea, diarrhea, swelling, um, behavioral disturbances sometimes, as well as some disorientation. Again, we're playing with with nerve conductivity, so that that's not the most unreasonable thing to hear. But again, these are not as common. Um, we of course want to use caution when these are being prescribed with our patients, and we only want to use one med to control arrhythmia if possible. Um, but sometimes we do have to use multiple uh, medications to help try to control some of these arrhythmias. Something else that you may see with arrhythmia is not so common again in our traditional sporting population, but Device therapy, like using a pacemaker, uh, could be one where it's basically an implantable cardio defibrillator or a cardioverter defibrillator. Sometimes you'll hear them called as ICDs, um, but they're essentially implanted just under the skin, but they do have small leads that attach to the heart. And they detect these irregular rhythms and help to treat these abnormalities through a small, relatively mild shock but since it's directly attached to the heart it doesn't need to be as intense as you would as you would probably imagine um essentially though because we're not commonly seeing these in competitive athletes and individuals who are needs to be on these icds probably aren't going to be the best candidates for a lot of strenuous activity that we really need to make sure that we're coordinating a quality well understood well thought of plan of care with the physician for each individual patient and this is probably going to involve um, a team physician, as well as a cardiologist. All right, if we switch gears to hypertension, um, again, remember hypertension, high blood pressure. Um, the, the numbers have kind of changed over the years, and I think that the numbers that are in your textbook are a little dated, so I'm going to provide you with those new numbers here in a second. But how do we diagnose hypertension? Um, we don't just take blood pressure once and we call it a day. And if it's a good reading, then we're great. And if it's a bad reading, then they're hypertensive or hypotensive or whatever it may be. But we want to stagger 
blood pressure readings at different times of the day over the course of at least a week um, and taking at least three separate measurements. Um, technically, we want to see that systolic number um, below 140. Really, it should be you know the 120 over 80. Some research is suggesting that really maybe our normal blood pressure is a little bit closer to 110 over 70, but that hasn't been definitively stated or made kind of best practices. So we're still going with 120 over 80 uh, millimeters of mercury. Um, but to diagnose hypertension, we're looking at consistent um, elevated readings. Primarily the systolic is what I'm concerned about, looking at that being 130, 140 millimeters of mercury plus, or the diastolic can be 90 millimeters of mercury or higher. It doesn't have to be that one or, or that both uh, the systolic and diastolic have to be elevated. It really can just be that one of them is elevated. So again, we want to take those blood pressure measurements at different times of the day with the appropriate size cuff because we know that the size of the cuff can give us false positive or negative readings. Um, remember that a large cuff compared to the patient can give us hypotensive-like readings, low readings, and if this, the cuff is too small, it can mimic hypertensive or too high of a reading for the patient. So make sure that we're absolutely assessing with the appropriate size cuff, uh, that the patient's seated, that they've been resting for at least five minutes, they're not running into their appointment late, um, that they're sitting in a comfortable sit position, the legs are not crossed, the arm is relaxed, um, all those things that we've, we've come to learn with, with taking blood pressure. So before we even identify any kind of pharmalo pharmacological agent for treating hypertension, we always want to look at those lifestyle factors. So diet and exercise, are they, are they getting enough activity, which, you know, at a minimum is 30 minutes a day uh, for adults, at least um, three, if not more days a week. Um, but again, thinking about our traditional patient population, we're probably okay in the activity perspective. Uh, the other thing is, is the diet. And so one of the diets that you'll see um, commonly is the DASH diet. And DASH is an, uh, an abbreviation for the dietary approach to stop hypertension. And this is really just a low sodium, a low salt diet. Um, yet we're kind of seeing though that only about 10% of the population, adult population is sensitive to salt. So the DASH diet, while followed, may still not really lead to greater outcomes, improved outcomes in our patients with regards to hypertension. So we can look at other things like relaxation techniques through breathing exercises, meditation, mindfulness, all that kind of stuff. And then, of course, limiting our smoking, alcohol, so on and so forth. And so assuming that all of those things have been addressed appropriately, we're confident that the patient has taken those on um, and we're still not getting the results that we're looking for, then we can start looking at adding in some adjunct therapies like medications. So we're still going to encourage good quality lifestyle changes. Um, of course, you can imagine that the compliance with those probably isn't the greatest overall, but we still will encourage it. Um, and then we can move into our medications. So the first medication I want to talk about is diuretics. Uh, and so diuretics looked to promote salt and water loss. And this can be through an increase in um, urination. And um, so we look at the loss that decreases the volume of the blood, right? So we're dehydrating the patient essentially because there's a water loss. Um, and that is thus going to decrease the amount of pressure against the walls, the vascular walls. Um, 
if that's still not enough, then we can look at some of these other medications like uh, calcium channel blocker, which are basically vasodilators. So they open up the lumen space, they increase the size of the lumen space in the, in the vessels by blocking movement of that calcium into the small, or excuse me, into the smooth muscle cells, which can cause an inhibition of the muscle contraction, allowing the um, rather inhibited blood flow. Um, another one is the angiotensin converting enzymes or ACE inhibitors. Uh, they act on the renin angiotensin system. So what this means is that when blood pressure falls, renin is released from the kidneys and joins with this angiotensin enzyme that's released by the liver to become angiotensin 1. This is then converted by another enzyme called angiotensin 2, which is a very strong vasoconstrictor. Um, this ACE blocks that conversion of angiotensin 1 front to angiotensin 2, thus not allowing that vasoconstriction to occur. So we're remaining in that more vasodilated state. Another aspect or another classification rather are alpha blockers. We don't see these very often, but they are out there. Um, and they're essentially just going to block alpha-1 adrenergic receptors for smooth muscle um, contractility in the peripheral vasculature. It, it, basically, they just cause vasodilation um, at the end of the day. And then beta blockers, um, basically by inhibiting the sympathetic activity, we, we cause that down-regulation uh, in the body, which among other things is going to cause that drop or that reduction in blood pressure. So... Uh, we've got to be a little cautious with these hypertensive medications because a lot of times um, they're going to cause fluid depletion or electrolyte imbalances. So depending on the type of medication and the history of the patient, we may need to do routine lab work to look at liver function, kidney function, metabolic panels, so things like that to make sure that we're not causing other systemic um, uh, negative effects to the body really. Um, the other thing to think about too is a lot of times you might see combination drugs to treat hypertension and this will usually involve a diuretic and then with one of the other types of hypertensive medications. And so that combination could have a synergistic effect where they have this kind of um, much more stronger effect than we would anticipate than if we were taking these medications individually. So that's another thing to kind of think about that they could really kind of have some really really obnoxious or severe reactions that we weren't expecting that they may have seen with when they were just taking the diuretic or just taking one of the other medications like the calcium channel blockers or the ACE inhibitors. Um, so fluid depletion we're worried about. We want to make sure that they're staying hydrated and that they're getting good electrolyte um, intake so we can maintain a proper balance. Orthostatic hypotension. So if they get up or get out of one position and moving into another, like getting out of bed in the morning, that sudden change um, can cause a sudden drop in blood pressure and make them dizzy. They could fall, especially if they're at a fall risk. Um, older individuals, for example, which could cause further injury. Um, these can kind of cause some pseudo type arrhythmias, more or less just kind of more of like a generic bradycardia or tachycardia where the heart rate increases or decreases, um, as well as dizziness and fatigue. So these are things we just want to continuously monitor. Um, if they continue to have issues with some of these re uh, adverse reactions, we probably want to refer back to their cardiologist or primary care physician, depending on who's um, helping to monitor this and kind of reevaluate their medications and see if there's anything else that we need to address.